Welcome to I Want That, which is an ongoing series here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, a show that focuses on the dynamic world of Disney merch. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill. And I'm entertainment writer Michelle Valladolid. And we're recording this on Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. Now, I know it's been a while since we recorded a, a podcast. In fact, the, the last one was posted in, in January of this year. And I want to stress, this was not Michelle's fault. Uh, if you've been listening to any of the other shows that posted Podcast Network, you know that I was battling a cold, one that hung on for the better part of a month. And just want to say I'm 90% back, folks, which means hopefully I'll no longer sound like I'm talking out on nostril, which I know is uh, kind of gross. A lot of merch news has broken since Michelle and I last did a show, so let's get to it. Oh, 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 oh uh, but before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that I Want That is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, now to the news. What's your take, Michelle? I mean, obviously, a lot of big news has broken oh. over the you know the last couple of weeks. I mean, Bob Iger steps down as head of the Walt Disney Company. Bob Chapek uh, assumes the throne. Uh, well, on on Diz Twitter, they're they're acting like it's the second coming of Paul Pressler. I disagree. Okay, and that's a smart attitude. <laughs> if I were picking the biggest story, I think it, it's, to be honest, uh, the impact the coronavirus is having. Uh, let's, let's see. We have first saw uh, Shanghai Disneyland close on January 25th, and the very next day, the Hong Kong Disneyland Resort closed. And uh, just this past, uh, what is it, Friday or Saturday, they announced that the Tokyo Disney Resort would be closing, but it only closed for two, two weeks. weeks. Two weeks. That's right. Okay. Um, I think it might stretch out further than that. Mm -hmm. I think it might go to six weeks. Mm -hmm. And the reason is why is because a couple days ago, they said six weeks was the point at which people could you know, go home and numbers of uh, infected were uh, dwindling in uh, China. And uh, given that the Louvre uh, actually closed in Paris on March 1st, actually, what, that's the number three tourist attraction in, in France? Like, I think the Eiffel Tower is number two, and of course, number one is uh, Disneyland Paris. Hooray for our uh, team. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so a lot of people are asking, you know, is Disneyland Paris going to close? And the interesting thing is the resort uh, has issued a statement uh, which reads, Disneyland Paris is open and welcomes its guests as usual. Uh, however, uh, they noted that we are following the development of the situation in close collaboration with health authorities, whose recommendations we follow. They then go on to say, you can check our, our park hours at this hour, and that seems to be, maybe you should update that. You know, just to make drop by every day and check that one out. To double back to the Tokyo Disney resorts and, and this closure, um, now, do you think this is going to impact the Disney Easter thing. Now, I know on an earlier uh, I Want That, uh, you and I went uh, into great length about all the special merch, and, you know, they, they do for this, this annual fest, which is scheduled this year from March 27th through June 12th, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. Now, uh, out ahead of this week's show, uh, you did your due diligence and uh, went down to Little Tokyo in LA and picked up a copy of Disney Fan Magazine. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of coverage of what's to come, right, for this year's uh, Disney Easter celebration, which, again, I, as I understand it, the dates are March uh, 27th through June 12th. You're right. They've got a, a good 10 pages 
dedicated mm-hmm. just to Easter goods and foods and things like that. And they have a parade, they've got uh, photo ops, and they've got a show. They, of course, have some of the great merch on the planet. I think previously we stated unspoken Disney truth that you know that everything's better in Japan. Can you talk Except a little bit about you know some of the the pieces that are being done for this year's Disney Easter celebration at the parks there? Well, they've got I mean everything. They've got hairbands and socks and shirts mm-hmm. and baby stuff and and mm-hmm. really cute hoodie and uh, one of my favorites is the uh, sleeping. You know, like the sleeping figment and the sleeping mm-hmm. poo and all those. They have a yep. sleeping sleeping Usapio, which is the mm-hmm. mascot for their Easter stuff. It's a chick mm-hmm. with bunny ears and a little cracked egg on the top of his head. And because eh. chicks go pew, pew in Japan. Mm-hmm. There's a keychain set, and it's plush, plush keychains. Mm-hmm. It is uh, $21, mm-hmm. and it's the Fab Four, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. Mickey, Minnie, Donald, and Goofy. They're each mm-hmm. holding a little P.O., and they're all dressed in their Easter best. In fact, uh, Goofy has pants, has eggs on his pants. He has pants on his eggs. You know, here in the States, when we think Easter, we think Easter baskets. They have something like that? Or? They do. They have a really cute uh, Easter twenty Disney Easter 2020 basket with P.O. in it and mm-hmm. flowers around the edge, and that's $30. Finally, of course, it's Easter, you know, and for some odd reason, we think chocolate. Oh, yeah, they've got all sorts of tins and boxes and and even a stuffed peo head but uh my favorite there's a uh a metal uh easter egg very mm-hmm. very designed and uh it's got the fab five on it including pluto with uh designs of them as eggs with little egg-shaped designs of them it's really cute and on the inside there's individually wrapped chocolate eggs with a mickey head silhouette on it Tokyo Disneyland, as of right now, is only closed, well, again, got closed on February 29th, and is scheduled to reopen uh, March 15th. But as Michelle just mentioned, uh, given the coronavirus-related situation, that this may be extended. Um, But it's also important to remember that, that it's not like Tokyo Disneyland hasn't closed before. In fact, um... You know, how many of you remember the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami uh, that happened back uh, March 11, 2011? Now, that was a Friday, and the quake happened at 2.46 in the afternoon in Japan, and Tokyo Disney Seas and Tokyo Disneyland were both open at the time. There were 70,000 guests in the park at that time, Michelle, and oh who gosh. now couldn't go home because of all, all of Japanese transportation systems shut down for post-quake uh, safety checks. Plus, there, there was the matter of the aftershocks. Right. Um, the first week after uh, the quake, uh, there were 315 aftershocks, some of them as high as magnitude uh, 5.0. And to put that in perspective, the original earthquake, which happened off the coast of Japan under the sea, uh, that was estimated to be magnitude 9.0, 9.1. Now, you've seen the, what is it, the Imagineering Story documentary series that Leslie Iwerks did, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I think it's episode five, uh, which is entitled uh, Carousel of Progress, that actually has footage of the quake happening in the park. Yeah. <laughs> What's weird is that there's these, these images of water coming up out of the ground because, of course, Tokyo Disney Resort is built on, on landfill, on reclaimed land at the edge of Tokyo Harbor. And so I guess... What's what's that called? Liquefaction when the water comes up through the reclaimed land. Yeah. Um, okay, but um, the, inter- the the thing I love about that footage is they show how the Tokyo Disney cast members went above and beyond 
uh, to to care for these these seventy thousand people who actually had to stay overnight in the park before I guess it was then deemed safe that that they could you know start to go to their cars or get in the transportation systems and, and head home. But anyway, um, the two Tokyo Disney parks then stayed closed up until April twenty eighth of that year. Uh, which is just ahead of something called Golden Weeks. Mm-hmm. What Golden is that? Week. Golden Week is uh, when everybody takes takes the week off to visit relatives or mm-hmm. go on trips or celebrate. Got it. Okay. So, uh, long story short, you know that the, the Tokyo Disney Resort's Easter celebration has been disrupted before. You know, folks. So it's no biggie this time around. Michelle gets to go to LA's Little Tokyo when she's doing research for I Want That. Some of us don't get to go to cool places like that. Me, uh, I went to the Merrimack uh, Premium Outlets, which is this outdoor mall in southern New Hampshire, just 16 miles uh, up from the, the Massachusetts border. Uh, anyway, I, I dropped by there on uh, February 28th. That was a Friday. We were shopping for Nancy's uh, grandnephew, uh, Abraham. Uh, he's he's going to turn two in a week or two. And... Um, <laughs> You know, it kind of kills me because we, we he's just been introduced to Winnie the Pooh and has fallen in love with the character Tigger, so we pick up a plush. And it's only when we get home uh, that we find out that on February 29th, uh, the Disney stores in honor of Leap Day offered a 29% off discount on all Tigger plush because, of course, you know, it's it's Leap Day. And what can, so it's like, I don't know. Timing is everything, uh, I, Jim. Yeah, no, I, I'm not a very smart guy. I could, maybe if I bought more of that Disney wisdom stuff that, again, we talked about in an earlier... Uh, I don't think I that'd be that. wise, Jim. The Disney wisdom stuff, at least based on the, the, the stuff that's been remaindered at uh, the, the Disney store that, again, we have at the uh, Merrimack Premium Outlets, that stuff's been marked down by 40%, which suggests that that maybe that didn't sell all that well, which again kind of puzzled me because Disney is doing it again. They've got a brand new uh, come in in the third Saturday of every month uh, collection thing going. Um, have you heard about this mini the main attraction? Oh yeah, I love those. I love the Space Mountain one. Yeah, can you can you describe that? That the, the it's the pl- the very first plush that they they sold in January. She's uh, kind of purplish. Mm-hmm. And she's got stars and galaxies on her ears, and her mm-hmm. skirt is Space Mountain with the ridges and everything. Yeah, yeah, and and that's kind of the gimmick for this particular collection. Uh, that every month uh, they're going to uh, you know celebrate. Uh, a classic deemed uh, Disney theme park attraction. So, uh, what is it? For February, they did Pirates of the Caribbean, and you and I were talking about that earlier. You know, that, that well, what, she, her outfit is, uh, this time around, is like Buccaneer Gold. Right, exactly. Back and Spanish blacks. lace. For March, uh, she's celebrating the Mad Tea Party. And they've got a full uh, set of items this time around. They've got the plush doll uh, that goes for $29.99. Uh, there's also uh, a mini backpack that Loungefly is doing. You know, a different one every month, and, and those go for $90 a piece. Yeah, that's Loungefly uh, prices. Mm-hmm. prices. And if you happen to be down at Walt Disney World, when, you know, the latest mini, the main attraction is introduced... They also offer a magic band that that its design sort of keys off of that attraction. You know uh, that you know, that's thirty four ninety nine, and then there's a stackable mug uh, for nineteen ninety nine. A set of mink, 
Minnie Mouse ear, uh, the headband thing. That also goes to $34.99. And finally, a pin set, which features three limited release pins every month. Uh, that That's also in $19.99. I have to warn you, if you're a completist, you know, grabbing every item for Minnie Mouse's The Man Attraction Collection every month is going to get pricey. It's It's... $240 plus tax. Again, uh, kind of not to sort of rub salt in the wound of Disney wisdom collection stuff being remaindered. I'm going to do just now selling for roughly 60% of what it sold last year. You know, when you and I were talking earlier about this, Michelle, you were advising folks not to think of these as investments, but, but you know, to just really get the, if you, you like what you see, you know, and you, you're fond of a particular attraction or you're fond of a particular plush, you know, buy it for that reason. Don't buy it right. because, you know, you think at some point you're going to be able to put your kids through school selling this stuff. Because. Now, um, you know, uh, your heart. You know well, well, I think that, that that's a smart way to approach Disney collecting. Get what appeals to you rather than thinking, you know, and, and speaking of which, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks right now who are just getting started sort of wandering around Epcot for the very first this year's uh, Flower and Garden Festival, which uh, starts today, March 4th, and runs through June 21st. Or excuse me, June 1st, not 21st. Um, not saying that Michelle and I are old, but, uh, we actually went to, we, we lived in Orlando, uh, back in, you know, starting in 1993. So we were there for the very first Flower and Garden Festival. In fact, I think it ran right after Alice was born, yeah, she right? she was like two months old. Yeah. Um, uh, and do you remember anything particular from the first Flower and Garden I remember walking around World Showcase and seeing how pretty the topiaries were. Yeah, and you were just talking about how you looked at some of the topiaries for uh, 2020 and really enjoyed yeah, those as well. Yeah, the Peter Pan one's very impressive. His face mm -hmm. sculpt, I don't know what you call it with plants, but it mm -hmm. is, is right on. And mm -hmm. they, um, they just unveiled a uh, Snow White and Dopey that are great and mm -hmm. a uh, Remy from Ratatouille, the rat. Mm-hmm. Really okay. cute. And you were also eyeballing some of the merch that's been created. Like, for example, there's the what? Uh, the World in Bloom collection? There is the World in Bloom collection, and that features mini and flowers, and it's really, really cute. And it actually reminds me of a set that I had back when we were married, where mm -hmm. I had the whole clothing set and the hat with mini mm -hmm. and the floral stuff. Except this is a much more stylized mini. Um, Alice has a cup that we got on the cruise line with this same stylized mini, and she's just gorgeous. And, and weren't you telling me that there was a coffee mug that you, or a coffee it, cup that you particularly enjoyed? There is. There are coffee mugs that look like flower pots, but there are also coffee mugs that look like um, glazed uh, watering cans. And, and how are we supposed to drink our coffee out of the watering can? Any way you like. Ah, uh, that's, that's <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Also, you talked about the Mickey's Farmer's Market collection. The Mickey's Farmer's Market collection is really cute. It's got Mickey like the on the flower pot, the flower mm -hmm. pot cup that I mentioned before, mm -hmm. and he's carrying vegetables, and the handle is an ear of corn. Mm -hmm. There's also okay. uh, one with uh, metal. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, Mick, 
Okay, so the the Mickey's Farmer's Market collection had a keychain you particularly liked? Yeah, it's a Mickey. It's metal. Mm -hmm. It's Mickey's head, and it's surrounded by canned and preserved goods, which it sounds so strange. I know it sounds Mm -hmm. so strange, but it's really, really cute. And then there's a a homegrown hat that has Spaceship Earth, Mickey, and his basket of vegetables. Okay. But I, I think you said your favorite of the, the offerings from the, the merch point of view. Orange uh, bird. You know, Orange bird. Again, the guy, the character that just defeats me. I, I don't understand the appeal. But uh, this is the Orange well, Bird like Anita Bryant. Sunshine Collection. Is that, that correct? Hello, Sunshine. Hello, Sunshine. Mm-hmm. It's uh, There's uh, mini ears that have mm-hmm. uh, his head on one side and Hello, Sunshine on the other and the bow. Is um, is green like an mm-hmm. orange tree with pretty little orange blossoms sprinkled over it. Okay. And well, I, you and know, there's an aloha we're... shirt. There is mm-hmm. a spirit jersey. Okay. What, what were you saying before I interrupt? Well, you? <laughs> I, I don't know. Again, you, know, you have orange jersey, but if I had to pick a character that's featured at this year's um, going to flower and garden, that, that I'd be intrigued in chasing merch down from. It's the, what is it, Spikes Cute As Can Be, and that's B-E-E collection. Yeah, um, get down here. Yes. This all keys off of, what, the, the Spike character that I guess was introduced in a Donald Duck cartoon window cleaner back from 1940. Correct. A cute little B character, and he, he wound up being featured in like 13 different shorts that Disney produced over the years. Um, in fact, uh, there's one, one in there Humphrey. called... What, BZB or BZ Bear from 1955 that stars my favorite Humphrey, which yes. I, I have to go chase down. But um, so, so, what is in the cute as can be collection? There is a stake, you know, like you stick in your garden mm-hmm. with a, him on a sunflower. Mm-hmm. There is a really cute picnic blanket that looks like a messenger bag because it's, it's mm-hmm. got the tote and it hangs over. But then it unfolds into this really cool picnic blanket. And there's an ornament, and there's a shirt. And uh, then there's the annual pass holder collection. Uh, you're excited about this one because this one... Figment, yeah. But if you were also mentioning that you think the big, highly sought-after uh, you know, toy from this year's uh, Flower and yeah. Garden... Yeah, it is going to be one of the wishables. Uh, right. There's a Mickey, there's a Minnie, there's either a cup or a bowl of something that's adorable. Mm-hmm. There's a butterfly, and then the one I think is going to be the breakout is the um, topiary figment. He's, it's a green plant figment with little leaves all over it. Oh, that does sound cool. We were just talking about Spike the Bee, who, again, you know, given the debut in, back in 1940, is celebrating his 80th anniversary at the Walt Disney Company. And uh, it's worth noting that today... Uh, is actually the, you know, again, today, March 4th, is the 70th anniversary of Cinderella's release to theaters back in 1950. It's hard to understate how important Cinderella was to the Walt Disney Company. I mean, without all of the money that that smash hit made, I mean, that was the seed money for Disneyland. So it's kind of appropriate that Disney Store uh, has a, what they're calling a Cinderella and Carriage Deluxe Gift Set. What's kind of cool about this thing is that um, it has, 
a Cinderella in her classic blue dress with removable blues, uh, glass slippers. Uh, it also has, uh, you know, a, a pumpkin coach that can light up from within. And it even has a white horse with uh, like a rooted uh, hair in, in its mane and its tail. And uh, what's kind of fun about it is that it has uh, a, a bridle and a harness that can be removed. So you can, you know, play with it away from the carriage. The only problem, you know, for me with this this 70th anniversary collectible is its price point, which is uh, $79.95, which, which seems a, a trifle steep for me for a, a toy you should be getting for a kid. Well, if um, your daughter was four and she wanted it. Ah, okay. Am I wrong? All right, you're not wrong. I'm not uh, wrong. <laughs> now, um, speaking of, of Cinderella, the uh, Magic Happens Parade debuted at Disneyland Park uh, back uh, just this past Friday, February 28th. And while Cinderella isn't in the parade, it's first daytime parade Disney's had in, in brand new daytime parade Disney's had in years. Uh, but her fairy godmother is, is in it, though I guess from what you were hearing, it's not that fairy, you know, those fairy characters, or that fairy character that people are talking about, but, but it's, it's rather, rather uh, Aurora. Her dress a, a, goes from Aurora. Aurora. Yeah, what's that about? It's uh, a special material. It's kind of mm-hmm. like the Autopia cars. And it, mm-hmm. as the light hits it, it goes from pink to blue mm-hmm. and back. Okay. So, and I think you were saying that you anticipate that uh, you know Disneyland will, will eventually put out some merch related to Magic Happens that that duplicates its effect, right? They, they have plenty plenty of merchandise out now, but I really think that with with the, all the um, all the buzz that that uh, dress has been promoting online, mm-hmm. I I think that it would be smart of them to put out some merchandise that does that same color shift. Well, can we talk about the merchants, some of the merchandise they actually have put out for, for Magic Happens? Oh, yeah. Oh. They've got okay. uh, some great mouse ears that has the the logo and, and the main thing on the parade is this big purple sorcerer's hat with swirls on it. Mm-hmm. So they've got mouse ears with that, and they're fuzzy. Mm-hmm. That's twenty nine yeah. ninety nine. There's a really great raglan shirt that I love. It's kind of plain for most people. It's gray, and it's got purple sleeves. It's got Mickey down near the waist, and then over mm-hmm. the heart it says Magic Happens. I love it. I think it's great. It's okay. $36.99. There is a light-up tumbler that's a lot like that uh, famous Epcot tumbler with the straw, and that's mm-hmm. $19.99. And again, the hat is on top of that. Okay. There is a light-up ornament. It's one of those big mouse ear, um, Mickey Mouse-shaped ones. It's purple. And then there's a limited-release pin that's fifteen ninety-nine, and there's a pass-holder-exclusive pin that's seventeen ninety-nine. Or oh, the ornament is twenty-seven ninety-nine. This merch is only available uh, in Disneyland Park, right? Though so I, I guess some Disney. of it might eventually show up at the World of Disney out in uh, the downtown Disney area. I bring this up. Because I, I wonder uh, how many of our listeners have, have actually made it to one of those Disney stores that was supposed to be built in inside of Target. Um, you I'm remember still this waiting. announcement? Yeah, um, I, I guess it was back in October last year. Uh, they announced they were going to build twenty-five well, no, of these. Bob Chakman announced it at D twenty-three. Well, I guess it was Target. That you know, then announced that you know specifically there were going to be these first twenty-five at select uh, targets around the country. What was interesting, they were going to be 
750 square foot stores. There were going to be some 450 items uh, on display in uh, these stores. But what was kind of interesting is uh, at least 100 of these items were going to be things that you'd only previously been able to get in an official Disney store or at the Disney parks. So, again, the reason I'm kind of putting this out there is that... I, you know, I wonder if, if any of our listeners have actually been to one of these, uh, you know, the, the, these Disney stores within a Target. I was trying to get to one myself, but, uh, you know, the closest one to me is in the Pocono Commons uh, shopping mall, which is in Stroudburg, Pennsylvania. And you're and in New a, Hampshire. Yeah, that's a bit of a schlep. That's a little um, bit, yeah. You know, I did, you know, again, I, I, I dropped by my, my local Target and... You know, to, to, to check to see if we, we make the list. Uh, but uh, to be honest, lately, the only thing I've seen there Disney-related is kind of interesting. They've begun doing some sales of sorts for the Frozen 2 items. Uh, you mean like clearance sales? It's not panic discounting. I mean, for example, uh, they're selling these uh, Anna and Elsa costumes that key off of the outfits that the, the sisters wore in uh, Frozen 2. So they have, for example, Elsa's dark sea dress uh, that initially went for $39.99. It's now selling for $35.99. And uh, the wig that goes with this particular outfit, uh, you know, originally sold for $19.99, now dropping to $16.99. Uh, and then there's a set of boots. Uh, those have dropped from $16.99 to $15.29. So Given that we're way far away from Halloween, I get why they, they would be, you know, marking that down a little. But but let's be honest, you know, a Frozen 2 just arrived on store shelves, uh, what is it, just this past week, the Blu-ray and DVD. Yeah, so there should, um, be, there should be a bump in the merchandise. That's what I was thinking as well. I, in fact, what's also kind of interesting is that if you... You walk around, uh, getting into the toy aisle. Uh, there's actually a promotion that Frozen, uh, you know, the Target's doing now for Disney Frozen items. That if you buy forty dollars worth of, of this merch, they'll then give you a ten dollar gift card. And uh, similarly, if you you wander over to the Lego aisle, they're doing a if you buy fifty dollars worth of Lego Star Wars toys, they'll give you a free ten dollar gift card. So, and given that the you know the rise of Skywalker uh, doesn't you know uh, you know doesn't hit Blu-ray and DVD till the tail end of this month, you got to assume as we were just talking about that that Blu-ray DVD uh, will spur a second round of, of toy sales. Right. Uh, on the other hand, I have to admit it was kind of an eye opener. Uh, to take a look at what some of these Lego sets were going for. I mean, I know you're a big Kylo Ren fan. I am. Uh, but, you know, they they have this amazingly detailed uh, version of Kylo Ren's shuttle that goes for $129.99. Yep. Uh, you know, and, and but again, that seems so a downright can bargain. Get out his pocket change and go buy himself a Lego. Uh, well, Legos are pricey. I, I I guess that that's the thing. We we had a girl, so I I guess I I dodged the Lego bullet. But oh no, I didn't dodge the Lego bullet. I still have uh, marks on my feet. Okay, well, all right. You know, again, again that 129 Kylo Ren shuttle looks positively affordable next to the 159 dollar. Uh, Millennium Falcon, which, by the way, to be fair, it there's was an eight hundred dollar the, Millennium Falcon, uh, seven hundred ninety nine okay. ninety nine. 
I guess, long story short, you know, I was just whining about the $79 that, you know, for that uh, Cinderella and Carriage Deluxe gift playset. Uh, so You were adorable <laughs> while you did it. Yeah, all right. But, <laughs> but, but again, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it, that's the thing. In the world of retail, uh, you know, when a movie underperforms at the box office, um, you know, the, the, the toys suffer, you know, and... Uh, oh boy, you know, that, 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 you know, when we get back from our break, um, we're going to talk about the, the Disney movie that's infamous even today for the way it did not sell toys. And we're back. Uh, but b- before we get to that movie with the toys that didn't sell, uh, again, it's March 4th and we have to you know, let people know that today, today, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway officially opened at uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. And it's going to be quite the people eater. You know, the one complaint they're hearing from folks is that, you know, the, the, the real problem with Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railroad is that it isn't the great movie, right? That's really, uh, that's the only. Know. Oh, and there's a, there's a scene in the pre-show mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Minnie does a pirouette and accidentally kicks uh, Pluto into a, into the car and then, uh, without knowing he was there, puts the luggage on him and closes the door. It's done for slapstick, but some people are making a big deal out of it. Well, you know, that, that, that's, there are people who would complain if they were hung with a new rope. Um, I, you know, for me, what, what I'm enjoying of what I've seen so far of this brand new Disney's Hollywood studio attraction is, well, first of all, it, does, it seemed to do such a wonderful job of recreating the world from Paul Rudders' shorts, uh, you know these these brand new Mickey Mouse cartoons that, that, Chris that Willis had been out did there. The music for the ride. Oh well, yeah, uh, uh, Christopher Willis, uh, who you know did such a great job on, on the music for the shorts. But you know, and I, for me, it's just kind of startling that it's only been since March of 2013 that that you know these wonderful shorts have been out there. Um, it, you know, face it. It must have been tough to be saddled with the assignment to, you know, effectively not only replace the great movie ride, but also figure out a way to to bring these wonderful stylized Mickey Mouse shorts uh, into the world, into a 3D environment. But, you know, thank God somebody at Disney was smart enough to to hand off this project to Kevin Rafferty. Um, yeah. You know, who, you know, it, God, we, how long have we known Kevin at this point? Since the sunny eclipse days when Alice uh, loved sunny eclipse. She was about oh, two, I think. wow. Yeah, so 1996. Wow. Okay. I sent him a drawing that she made of sunny eclipse, and he sent back an autographed picture from sunny eclipse. He knows him uh, well. Okay, cool, cool. Um, can you now, <laughs> you know, I guess the, the the biggest indication that Disney thinks they have a smash hit on their hands is the virtual mountain of Mickey and Minnie Runaway Railway merch. Can, oh my gosh, there's there is a ton. Mm-hmm. Can you talk talk through it? Oh yeah, there's an opening day pin, a pass holder pin, a pass holder shirt, a railroad engineer hat, a railroad uh, whistle, a train whistle mm-hmm. that has Mickey and Minnie on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing can stop us now is this is the song from from the ride and there's a shirt with that there's a shirt with the ride logo there's a pass holder shirt pass holder magic band there's a train toy model and i think I, they missed the boat a little on this train toy model i think they should have made it so that it could run on the same railroad as the walt disney world railroad the toy one okay so you could mm-hmm. run that and the railroad and your monorail mm-hmm. um 
And then they have wishables, including Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse in the in their little car, and Goofy mm-hmm. and Pluto. Um, and they have this really cool pair of ears that's actually the old-fashioned mini hats from the 1930s on the ears. The little, mm-hmm. the little round hat with the flowers sticking out of it. And then there's a little bird in there called Chuby, and uh, they have a purse and plush. Got uh, another set of ears that's a set of clear ears with Mickey on Minnie and discs on the inside of the ears that roll around and move when you move your head. Oh. And that... That's uh, and it's got a little train on the top on a spring, so you can go doing and make the, the train train go back and forth. There's but a, then there's another set of views that you particularly are lusting after, right? Right. Um, two of them actually. There's an ornament by Costa Alavesos that looks like a train, and it's really cool. And then there is the uh, designer collection ear hat by Kevin Rafferty. And it's called the Perfect Picnic Light-Up Ear Hat. And it's got train tracks across the front and the little train over your left eye. Fireworks on the ears. And then Mickey and Minnie picnicking on the top. Mickey's playing a ukulele for Minnie who's dancing. Mm, I, you know, and, and I love that, that Kevin himself did this. Well, Perfect uh, Picnic. You know what Perfect Picnic It's the name of the short that you're going into on the ride. I, I'm just... Thrilled for Kevin that this this attraction has gotten such a strong response already, and it was you know it was particularly exciting that even before this thing opened, uh, you know plans were announced to bring a clone uh, to Disneyland in 2022. Uh, yeah, it's got Kevin Rafferty's name on it. It's quality. Downside is Kevin won't be building or won't be in charge of. The one uh, that's going into uh, Mickey's Toontown in yeah. Anaheim because he told he's, me he's retiring, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And what a bummer. I wish he he put in some because some time on on the Disneyland version. Because remember, he actually started off uh, his career with the company at Disneyland. He was a, a dishwasher, uh, and then uh, over time. He worked his way up to being the assistant manager of Club Thirty Three, and um, and you know, which again is is a highly sought after position at that resort. But then, uh, as Kevin tells the story, he saw a sign that said "Mickey wants you." Uh, they were recruiting folks to help the Walt Disney Company, uh, you know. Complete Epcot in time for its opening in October of 1982. So applied and went over to WED in 1977 and to this day talks about the fact that he had to take a pay cut. You know, um, he was making $5 an hour as the assistant manager of, uh, you know, Club 33, which back in 1977 was very good dough. Uh, but yeah, he, he had to, to take a step down. To uh, then basically do an entry level in Imagineering, where uh, he matted and uh, dry or dry matted and matted concept art uh, that the Imagineers were working on for future attractions to the park. And um, I, at some point, you know, he's still out there talking about his his book, Magic Journey. Uh, you know, at some point we're going to have to, to, to buttonhole him and, and, and get him to, to talk about whether or not while he was at Imagineering, if he ever saw any concept art for that black hole ride. The, you know, do you remember when they were talking about doing that for I Tomorrowland? It, is, oh, it was, in a weird sort of way, it was the first try 
at Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger spin in that you were, it was a shooter. You were supposed to go through the, you know, go through the sickness and battle all of the, the, the evil robots. And, uh, you know, Black Hole came out in December of 1979, and, and the film itself cost $17 million to make. It only made worldwide $35 million. Oh, boy. Um, so, and, and these days, when whenever people talk about the Black Hole, they sort of see it as Disney's attempt to cash in on Star Wars, which, of course, came out, uh, you know, the original one, A New Hope, uh, arrived in theaters in May of 77. Um, but that's not true. It actually, you know, what's weird about the the black hole is that it actually started off life as Disney's answer to um, what is it? The, the Poseidon Adventure in Towering Inferno. It was actually supposed to be a family friendly disaster movie. If well, you can it was a disaster, it. all right. Aha. Well, okay. Tell this the story properly, folks. We've got to go all the way back to the early 1970s, and at this point, Walt Disney Productions hasn't really had a hit since what? Um, the Love Bug came out or went into wide release in March of, of 1969. By December of 72, it was really obvious that Disney was kind of out of step. With what was going on in the movie marketplace, like you know that that uh, you know that holiday season, Disney put into theaters uh, a lightweight Dean Jones comedy, uh, The Snowball Express. Whereas 20th Century Fox, why is that name significant? I'm, I, <laughs> eh, okay, um, well, the 20th Century Fox releases a disaster movie, uh, The Poseidon Adventure, uh, only cost. Uh, four point seven million to make, and would eventually go on to sell seventy five million dollars worth of tickets worldwide. Which, if you adjust for inflation, is uh, four point uh, four hundred sixty two million in two hundred twenty dollars. Um, on the other hand, Snowball Express only made six million dollars uh, at the box office, which barely covered the cost of making, releasing, and then promoting this Dean Jones movie. And and here's Disney looking on as. 20th Century Fox follows up Poseidon Adventure by teaming with Warner Brothers to make The Towering Inferno, uh, which costs a little bit more to make. Uh, it's $14 million versus the $4.7 million that it costs to make Poseidon Adventure. But on the other hand, when it's released to theaters, it makes $91 million, which, again, if we're, we're playing the adjusted for inflation game, that's $561 million in $220. Or, excuse me, $2,000. Uh, $20. And of, of course, you know, the, 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 this will kind of resonate with you, Michelle. The, what does Disney put in theaters for December of 74? Uh, but Islands at the Top of the World, yes. which, uh, you know, um, the studio really had hoped was going to be a hit because, you know, that would have led to Discovery you know, Bay. Yeah, what what people had really hoped would save the parks, uh, you know, give Disneyland this amazingly immersive new land. Is it was it our your engagement gift to me that you bought that pr they made prints yes. of Tony Baxter's Tony's picture yeah. of Discovery Bay? Yeah, I, I I think I still have that somewhere in the basement. It's it's a beautiful piece, but that movie cost eight million dollars to make and only made. Ten million dollars at the box office. So, and and this is the thing that this drove Winston Hibbler crazy. Winston is a guy who started at Disney back in 1942. 
He rose up to the ranks at the studio. He's a, you, you probably know his name from the True Life Adventure movies. He made a couple of the 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 ones that won Academy Awards, The Living Desert, Vanishing Prairie, and White Wilderness. Again, he was there at, at Walt's elbow when, you know, Disney made movies that gave, you know, other studios in Hollywood a real run for their money. And, you know, and he was like, you know, we can still be in this business. We can still compete with, you know, the Warner Brothers in the 20th you know, centuries of the world. And in fact, he went to Ron Miller and said, look, disaster movies are in right now. And I think I have an idea for a family-friendly disaster movie. And, uh, you know, you know your, your Ron Miller history, Michelle. I mean, he was, was equally frustrated that right. Disney was, was so out of step with what was going on in Hollywood and, uh, you know, the, the, the 1970s. Yep. And, and so he, of course, you know, he listened to uh, Winston Pitch. He loved it. And so, uh, you know, he, he immediately, you know, puts this thing into development. So what's interesting is if we open the Walt Disney Productions annual report for 1974, uh, we have a description of this then still in development disaster movie. And what it says is Winston Hibbler has begun work on the next epic adventure to be filmed at Disney Studios, Space Station One. Not X One. Set it not X One. Space Station One. And it's set in the year twenty sixteen. Uh and this project will calls for the our org- yeah, 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 the far-off year of 2016. But it will call for the organization's talent and special effects to capture the perils of a sophisticated space station, which is virtually torn apart by a supernova uh, shock and then drawn into a black hole in space. Torn apart so, by what? A, a supernova. Supernova. Uh, you know, which like I, I think I actually owned one of those <laughs> it, it's, it, it, after my, pin, my Ford Pinto. Uh, and no, according to the research I've done, supernova is basically the same thing as a supernova, which is, uh, what, an explosion caused by the collapse of a dying star, hugely destructive event. Hibbler spends the next year or so developing this family-friendly disaster film for Disney, and uh, which, again, is supposed to make Disney uh, competitive with 20th Century Fox. Again, that name. What about that name? Uh, and, and Warner Brothers. With the idea that you know, this will then be... Disney's Poseidon Adventure, Disney's Towering Inferno, and and make no mistake, folks, the executives at Walt Disney Productions back in the mid nineteen seventies were obsessed with those two movies. Uh, how do I know? When the studio went to go make Pete's Dragon, which was Disney's first big live action movie musical since Bedknobs and Broomsticks, so that was released to theaters in December of seventy one. Who did they they hire to write the music? Uh, not Disney's old standbys. Uh, Richard B. and Robert M. Sherman. I mean, yeah, Academy Award winners. Those guys are losers. Um, who do they go with? Um, the songwriting team of Al Kasha and Joel Hershon. Now, you probably don't know those names, but the reason Disney hired Kasha and Hershon to write songs for Pete's Dragon, this was back in October 75. The reason they did that was because Al and Joel had first written There's Got to Be a Morning After, that's the Academy Award-winning theme song to The Poseidon Adventure, and then Al, uh, excuse me, Kasha and Hershon went on to write 
We may never love like this again. <sighs> Boy, if there was ever a song title for the 1970s. But anyway, We May Never like uh, Love Like This Again, which would, believe it or not, was the Academy Award-winning theme song for The Towering Inferno. Now the story, I swear to God, it, it, it's going to take a weird turn, but th th seriously, this actually happened. It turns out Al and Joel were t supposedly two very superstitious guys. Uh, so much so uh, because they wanted to keep their streak of Academy Award winning songs going. Kasha and Hershon decided that at least one number that they wrote for Pete's Dragon would have to reference their earlier hit films. The, you know, the two disaster movies they worked on, The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. Which brings us now to Candle on the Water. Which, by the way, did actually get nominated for Best Song at the 50th Academy Awards in 1977. Uh, it, it, it only uh, to lose that year's Oscar to You Light Up My Life. Talk about your oh. talk about your 1970s song titles. Yeah, um, but but here's the thing: when us civilians listen to "Candle on the Water," what, you know, what do you think of Helen Reddy? She's up there singing in the lighthouse. But when Al Kasha and Joel Hirschhorn, you know, what they heard whenever they heard they heard that song played, they first heard a reference to the Towering Inferno. A candle, uh, which is what a tall building looks like when it's on fire. Oh, dear. And, and then a reference to the Poseidon Adventure, as in water, because that movie features a giant ocean liner that, gets, uh, that capsizes when it's hit by a rogue wave out in the open water. Um, I, I swear to God, folks, this is a true story. If you don't believe me, go out and pick up a copy of Al Cash's memoir, Reaching the Morning After, which Nelson Incorporated published back in 1986, and this is where Kasha initially shared the secret meaning of, of Candle on the Water. So they're working on the score, uh, you know, starting in October of 1975. Meanwhile, Winston Hibbler is chugging away on, on you know, again, family-friendly disaster film, Space Station One. So um, in a report comes out tail end of, of 1975, uh, it now mentions Space Station One is in long-range planning for production in 1977, will be the most ambitious live-action feature the studio shot to date, a truly, in this truly fantastic science fiction story, uh, co-produced by Winston Hibbler, an incredible robot joins the daring rescue of the personnel aboard a doomed Earth station, which is steadily being drawn into a black hole in space. And once again, you know, they go, the film will uh, provide a special challenge to the studio's talented special effects department. I love that line, uh, you know, in the description of a uh, black hole in space as opposed to those pesky black holes that pop up in the kitchen. Right. In the hallway. Sorry, There's no an aurora borealis in your kitchen. <laughs> May I see it? <laughs> Ghostbusters, right? No, Simpson. Oh, that's right. Uh, the, the, the him. The steam hams. Oh, there we go. Yes. <laughs> Skinner. Skin okay. Um, all right. Anyway, uh, but again, the part that breaks my heart here is the the plan for production in '77, and as we mentioned at the top of the story, you know that that Star Wars came out in May of '77, and this now meant that that you know if they had stuck to the original schedule, Black Hole would have come out you know the following you know in 1978, and couldn't help escape being seen as a a, a Star Wars uh, ripoff. I, uh, but the part of the story that just fascinates me is that Disney could have had 
Star Wars. Uh, April of 1973, George Lucas actually brings his 13-page treatment for what it is known at that time as the Star Wars. Uh, And there's this great book called uh, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, Princess Leia and the Unsinkable Tammy in Hell, uh, written by Darwin Porter, uh, where they, they, they... they share a quote from an interview that George Lucas did at one point, and he, he talks about uh, bringing you know, uh, th- this pitch to Disney, and he says, I won't say those Disney executives tossed me out of my ass, but they did show me the door very quickly. Uh, you know, and so, so Disney had the chance uh, you know, to have Star Wars in April of 1973, but they let it slip through their fingers. Meanwhile, thanks to Alan Ladd Jr., the then head of 20th Century Fox, Again, that name. Um, George, uh, you know, the, the George got the money he needed to make A New Hope, and by March of 1976, he's out in the desert of Tunisia shooting scenes that are set in Tatooine, uh, where his space station won. Uh, that project suffers a huge setback in August of 1976 and because Winston Hibbler, uh, you know, again, the veteran Disney producer who dreamed up this whole family-friendly disaster film, he dies at the age of 65. It's at this point that the Space Station One really starts to go off track. Um, you know, of course, when uh, you know Star Wars finally comes out, everyone in Hollywood, including Disney, is like, how do I get me one of them? <laughs> and and that's the thing, that, that Disney doesn't, you know, and they've got Space Station One, you know, that they've got, uh, you know, the, this project that, Winston did all this work on, so, you know, they continue Continue working working on it. They bring bring his son son Christopher Christopher in, Christopher Hibbler, uh, to co-produce. They also hire Jeb Rosebrook, uh, who, you know, up until this point, Jeb's professional career as a writer is that he's done four episodes of The Walt. So, of course, he's the perfect guy to come in. And work on a, a science fiction fantasy film. And it gets worse because, of course, Disney is looking at at Star Wars, you know, and, and all the money they're making off of the toys. And remember how in the initial description of this project, it was one heroic robot. You know, if you look at Star Wars, there's all sorts of robots and there's, you know, there's all sorts of ships. And... Suddenly, Suddenly, this film really starts, starts to get, get distorted. distorted. You know, know that, that, that you know, in fact, supposedly, uh, it's not just make it more like Star Wars, but also Jeb's getting notes to the effect of make this something that will actually fit in with the Disney library. You know, make it more like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So it's now 20,000 Leagues Up in Space. And so, you know, now, and, and now the name of the project changes. It goes from Space Station One to Space Probe. Because, of course, Space Probe sounds like Star Wars. And Space Probe um, is, in, and, is in, you know, in Space and, and then hmm? Space Probe is in Space Mountain. Okay. We'll fold that into the mix here. I, I think the thing particularly kind of doomed um, Black Hole was that at some point Disney realized that, well, wait a minute, if we make it too obviously a, uh, you know, like a, a ripoff of Star Wars, um, you know, people will hammer on us for that. So let's fold in a good chunk of 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm. which brings us to the end of the movie, um, you know, which is set up 
Uh, literally, like, okay, we're two minutes into the movie, and they put up a hologram of the black hole, and Ernest Borgnine's Harry Booth character has one of the worst descriptive lines in the history of Hollywood. It's like, wow, right out of Dante's Inferno. Um, and, and that line is in there to set up the end of the movie, uh, which, if you remember, the imagery is very religious for a Disney film. Um, there's that moment where you get to see uh, Maximilian Schell's uh, Dr. Hans Reinhardt character. Uh, he, he's effectively in hell, you know, surrounded by, by flame and, and, you know, dark minions. And, and then they transition basically to a set of stained windows, or, you know, or, or, you know and, and, you know, with an angel superimposed flying through these things. And, and, and yet the end that was supposed to pay off all of this, Disney tested and got such a bad response in previews, they cut it out of the movie. Have you heard about this, Michelle? Yeah, um, you told me yesterday, but no, please. Okay. Tell them. All right. I still don't believe it. Okay, the, the, here's the setup. Okay, all right. How many of you folks are familiar with, you know, Michelangelo's The Sistine Chapel? In, in particular, the fresco, uh, the creation of Adam. Uh, it's, it's perhaps the most famous image out of the Sistine Behold, Chapel. The it shows of the Sistine ceiling. St- there we go. Uh, the, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Um, so this fresco depicts the hands of God and Adam nearly touching, you know. And so if you remember the end of the, the black hole, the, the you know, uh, it, toward the very end of, of this massive effect scene, you see the, pal, uh, you know, the probe ship flying into this, this bright white space. And what was then supposed to happen is, you know, you, this probe ship basically disappears, but you'll see this bright white space, but the camera begins to pull back and pull back and pull back. And then you notice these two images coming in from in the side of that white void. And as the, the camera continues to pull out, you realize, oh my God, that's the finger of God and the hand of Adam. And it pulls out and you're suddenly looking at the fresco in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And then eventually the camera drops to the floor of you know, the, 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 the chapel and who's looking up at the, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, but, uh, Yvette Menu's Kate McRae character. And, you know, oh, she, you know, <laughs> and then it's over. I mean, that was the end of the movie. And, you know, the lights came up and as I understand it, the, at the test screening, the audience damn near rioted. Cause it's like, what? There were robots. There were, the flying meteors. How were we in the Sistine Chapel? And it's like, uh, okay, we need a new ending. Anyway, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, Disney spent seventeen million dollars to make this, which was huge money. Uh, you know, back in in seventy nine, the original Star Wars, you know, only cost eleven million. Um, and you know, it, it, you know, Black Hole makes three hundred and excuse me, thirty five point eight million worldwide. Whereas the original Star Wars makes 410 million, uh, you know, worldwide, which is the equivalent of 1.2 billion today. Uh, so honestly, the only people who ever made any money off of the black hole were the people who bought the toys and oh, were they toys, Michelle? Uh, there were lunch boxes, there were action figures, calendars, there were models of Cyg- the Cygnus, the, uh, the the Crystal Palace-like ship, and 
Vincent, the little, you know, R2-D2-like flying robot that was voiced by Ronnie McDowell. Long story short, these things did not sell in 79. So there were a lot of toy collectors who bought these things on 10 cents and a dollar when they were being remaindered. And they're now, if you go over to eBay right now, uh, these black hole toys, individual action figures, are selling for $250 a piece. So um, to kind of bring this full circle, maybe you should go buy, uh, you know, that Disney wisdom stuff. Because who knows, 40 years from now, uh, you know, there, there may be somebody who needs a stackable mug. Anyway, uh, long story short, short folks, if you like these sorts of behind the scenes stories about the Walt Disney Company, you need to know that Michelle and I, along with Dustin Fuse, are teaming up with Storybook Destination, the travel agency that it helps with uh, Jim Hillmedia stage all of its previous live, live events. Uh, we're doing another get-together this November. Uh, so please mark your calendars uh, for November 13th through the 16th, which is when uh, we're going to be doing, God help us, Jim's Disney Spring Thing. I love it. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that name. Uh, anyway, uh, this uh, weekend-long event will feature trivia contests and scavenger hunts, not to mention a visit to the Disney West Side to catch a performance of uh, Drawn to Life, uh, the new Cirque du Soleil all-Disney-centric show, which begins previews later this month on March 20th, to be exact. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the history of the late Great Pleasure Island, uh, which uh, Michelle and I were, were very friendly uh, with, with the cast of, of, of that show. In fact, uh, one of, of uh, there was a member of the prominent member of the opening cast of the Adventure Club who actually made uh, an appearance at the hospital the day uh, Alice was born. Um, do you want to share that story or yeah, uh, Leslie Carrera? who's now Leslie Carrera Rudolph, mm-hmm. um, Wop Frog, mm-hmm. uh, was... And, uh, uh, you might know that name, by the way, folks, if you were a fan of Sesame Street, because she's the very talented performer uh, behind Abby Cadabby, the Sesame Street Muppet that, what, is a, a, a fairy in training? training? Yeah. Okay. All right, you were telling the story. Okay, well, a week earlier, she had come and thrown me a baby shower in the hospital because I had some complications and brought me presents from each of the Adventurers Club members, hmm. supposedly. Uh, the, like, for instance, uh, the butler sent a white glove with little bells on the fingers, and Hathaway Brown sent a small model airplane. It was really cute, a little hand airplane. So she came back just to visit, and it turns out that at that point... I was at that in exact heavy labor. Moment. Yeah. In fact, uh, 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 to set the scene properly here, as Leslie pokes her, her head into Michelle's uh, a hospital room, I'm holding one leg. Michelle's mom, Nancy Smith, is holding the other leg. And Alice is getting ready to make her debut. So, again, continue the story. She decides that she's going to help. So she Mm -hmm. gets up on a table and starts jumping up and down and yelling, push her out, push her out, way out, until Alice is born. Then um, she's going to be late for work, so she yells at Alice that she's covered with library paste, and then she leaves. (sighs) (laughs) And 
And then, uh, you know, again, we were terrible parents. We would bring our, our newborn to the Adventurers Club, but we, we wouldn't actually be in the club club. We'd be down, uh, what, at the, down at the very bottom of the stairs next to... Yeah, under the stairs was a little carpeted area. After, uh, after we moved away, they took mm-hmm. up the carpet, but it used to be carpeted down there, and it was... A, mm-hmm. A little quiet and kind of aside from everything, and and uh, this was also where the the cast members would would come and go going backstage. You know, for example, the uh, yeah, the door to the green. What room. is it? Yeah, and w- what was funny is that they 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 would grab Alice out of our hands and and cuddle with her down there in the alcove, and then suddenly, oh, I got to go on stage and suddenly become Otis Wren or suddenly become Dusty Cabinets, and well, uh, I guess. One one night when we were sitting sitting down there, someone else came to visit us. That's right. That's right. It, 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 this is Joe Rohde. And Joe was bringing uh, folks into the Adventures Club. In fact, it was kind of an interesting moment because he was literally pointing to things in the club like, that's mine. I put this in here. I found that in, you know, at Sumatra. And it, but, you know, again, he then sees us with the cast and he sees us with Alice. And I, and he comes over and just just picks up Alice, and I guess because his own son was about nine months old at the time, and Alice was about uh, five months. Yeah, and it was just it was one of these things. It was like, oh, I need a fix. I need a baby fix. Oh. I haven't seen my son in so long, Cause, and cause he, he just was working on animal care. You know, but again, it was it was just we were again. There was a whole club full of drinking and carousing, but down here was this little quiet corner full of of touchy feely actors and creative types who missed babies. And so, yeah, we, we lost our shirt. Yeah, we had a very weird connection with the cast of the Adventures Club. But but we'll get to that at this event in November. Not only that. Uh, we will talk about uh, Disney Boardwalk, uh, the original version of Disney Boardwalk, with the Imagineers originally planned to be basically Pleasure Island 2, right? It was going to be a nighttime entertainment district with a... It was. Uh, and they'll hear my, sto- yeah. my story about when I took a boat out on Crescent Lake to sunbathe. Uh, okay. <laughs> we'll save that one. Anyway, uh, these are the sorts of stories you'll get to hear, folks, if you participate in our next live event again this November. Guaranteed to be a fun time, and if you want to get in on that fun, please drop Tammy Whiting a line at DisneyDish at StorybookDestinations.com, and then let her know you're interested in taking part in this year's event. Once we firm up details as, as to actually what we're doing uh, come November, Ms. Whiting will be back in touch. Um, but if people can't wait that, uh, till that point to hear more of your stories, Michelle. Where else can they find you online? I do rumor control on MiceChat.com, and I have pink monorail podcast with our daughter alice talented girl okay we have on, on uh, this side of the fence we have uh disney's with lentesto we have fine-tuning with drew taylor we have uh universal joint with dustin fuse who will also be taking part with us in the, the event in november uh we have uh looking at lucasfilm with dan z and let's not forget about Marvel Us Disney with Aaron Adams, a gentleman who edits a lot of the podcasts here at the Jim Media Podcast Network. Uh, tell you what, folks, if you could do uh, Michelle and I a favor, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend the show, we'd really, really appreciate that. That gets us extra eyeballs and ears. And if you particularly enjoyed what you heard today, if you get head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that's what helps us, uh, you know, pay for those $79 <laughs> Cinderella and Carriage deluxe <laughs> gift play sets. <sighs> okay, <laughs> man. 
Anyway, um, social media. We have a social media presence. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram as Jim Hill Media. Uh, over on Facebook, for some reason, we're Jim Hill Media News. Um, anyway, uh, we look forward to chatting again with folks. So we should be back with a brand new episode of I Want That in Two Weeks Time. So till then, happy shopping. <laughs>